For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Conformed to His Image. Conformed to His Image. This is part two, Romans chapter eight, particularly verses 29, and the very end of 29 there with that final clause that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Uh, This text, the text that has been the subject of our consideration now over several weeks, is a text that Christians have repeatedly turned to for reassurance in trials and in tribulations and in difficulties. They've done so for millennia uh, now since this text was written uh, in the first century. And the reassurance that the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Now that good purpose is expressed in eternity by the decree of God. God in eternity has decreed our good through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God who has foreknown us, who has predestined us to be conformed into the image of his only begotten son. That decree of God then in eternity worked out in time and in space through the providence of God where he sovereignly decrees the affairs of history, even our pain and suffering, right? Even the actions of sinful men toward our ultimate divine accomplishment or toward their ultimate divine accomplishment of all that he's determined for his glory and for our good, God is working them all together to see his purposes accomplished. For those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has demonstrated his own commitment to our good in nothing less than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How is it that he wouldn't be working all things together for our good? He has demonstrated a supreme commitment to our good in the cross of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. All things, including his own spirit, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. All things, including his own spirit, by whom we have been adopted as children in his household. All things, including an inheritance with his son. All things, an inheritance uh, in which we inherit all things. All things given to us in him. And all things, including the complete and entire transformation of our very person in conformity with the person of his son. A conformity which includes a renewing of our mind, uh, our heart, our will, our emotions, our affections, our desires, our conduct, even our very bodies in all things, working all things together for our good in conforming us into the image of his son. It's a transformation that for those who are united to Jesus Christ, for those who are indwelt by his spirit, it's a transformation that has already begun. It has already been started, and we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will absolutely, assuredly, certainly complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Because, all of that because, or through the means of, if you will, 
Whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, the ultimate aim of all of that, I want you to think with me, the ultimate aim of all of that, the the ultimate aim for which God is working all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose, the reason why he works all things together for our good is so that in our text, verse 29, Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. That is his ultimate purpose. Strangely, that may sound strange in uh, modern-day evangelicalism where everything seems to be man-centered. That is distinctively son-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered. In the context of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, the firstborn, that's the word prototakos in Greek, the, the prototakos communicates much more than simply birth order. The firstborn is a designation that refers to all the rights and privileges that accompany the firstborn son in the family, including being the royal heir of the household estate, including being the royal head of the household upon the death of the father. There were rights and privileges and blessings and honors that were associated with being the firstborn, the prototakos. Those were rights and privileges, blessings that Jacob coveted, that Esau despised. Right? Esau was content rather with a, a pot of stew, right? satisfying his physical appetites rather than the blessings afforded the master of the house. Rights and privileges given to Judah when they were forfeited by the sin of Reuben. In our study of Revelation on Sunday evenings, in chapter 7, if you remember, we saw in that list of the tribes of Israel, Judah listed first, Reuben listed second, Those benefits, those blessings, the rights and privileges of the firstborn given to Judah. To Judah, his father, Israel says, Genesis chapter 49, verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Not the firstborn Reuben, but Judah. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is going to rule. Judah is given the the right to rule. The blessings of the firstborn, the prototakos. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the scepter of rule, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh, the Messiah, comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And we know the Lord Jesus Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. Amen. And when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ as the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the firstborn, the prototakos. He is the one who inherits all things. He is the one who rules and reigns over the kingdom of his father. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter one, and I want to explain this for us this morning. Hebrews chapter one. We're going to go to several places in the Bible this morning. So hang in there with me. We'll look at a few of these texts and I want to help us to understand this. This is going to be a very important principle for applying verse 29 to our understanding as we work through this text together. Hebrews chapter one, verse five. What we're talking about is the firstborn son. In particular now, the the designation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the firstborn. And in our text, the firstborn among many brethren. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, is where we see the son designated as such. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? The answer to that is not one of them. <laughs> None of the angels did he ever say that. And again, To the son, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn, 
the prototokos, the royal son, when he brings him into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. In other words, he is given the highest station, the highest honor, the highest blessing. And of the angels, he says, verse 7, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers, his servants, a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It is a wonder to me why there is even a debate over the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read verse um, 8, your throne, to the son, he says, your throne, O O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. It's the scepter of his rule, do you see? You have loved righteousness, and you have hated lawlessness, and therefore now, on that basis, because the Lord Jesus Christ was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, displaying his love for righteousness, his hatred for sin, therefore, on that basis, God, your God, the Son is God, and God. The Father is God. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. In other words, the firstborn is the heir. The firstborn holds the highest station. The firstborn inherits the household estate. The firstborn here is the king. The firstborn is seated upon the throne. The firstborn is the one who rules over the kingdom of his father. And who has that designation, that title been given to? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our text, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as the firstborn over or among many brethren. Now, think with me. As firstborn, prototakos, the Lord Jesus Christ rules over them as Lord. To Judah, he said, right, that a scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh comes, and then the obedience of the nations will be toward him. All of his sons, so to speak, would bow down before him. He rules and reigns over them as Lord. He is head, the Bible says, over all things to the church. This is the firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ. What has qualified them, those many brethren, what has qualified them to be his brethren? his own work on their behalf. He has redeemed them. He has suffered in their place. He has paid their ransom from sin and from death. He has credited them with his own perfect righteousness when they were unrighteous themselves. And the Father has justified them through their faith in his only begotten Son, the firstborn. And now they've been placed into union with him by his spirit, the spirit who now works in them to conform them into his image, working all things together for their good in order to sanctify them, in order to set them apart to the son, to make them fit for the kingdom. All to what end? To what purpose? Is all of that good and glorious work being done. It is so that our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in being the firstborn, not just the firstborn, but the firstborn among many brethren. It is to his glory that he brings many sons to glory. Do you see? It is to his glory that he suffered and died in their place and has now been exalted, given the name which is above every name, that at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every tongue should confess and every knee will bow that he is the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn to the glory of God the Father. The one who is magnified, the one who is exalted, is the prototakos. And he is magnified in that he is the firstborn among many sons who he brings to glory himself. All 
all of them, think with me, made anew in his own image. Do you see how that glorifies and exalts and magnifies the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. He holds the highest station. He is the firstborn. Colossians chapter 1. Look there beginning with me at verse 15. And here again, the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He is above all of those things. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. We're speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That phrase, firstborn from the dead, is an important one. It's repeated again in Revelation chapter 1. Turn to Revelation chapter 1 with me. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. In our study of Revelation on Sunday evenings, we examined this text and looked at this clause in particular. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. John, the apostle John, in addressing the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn, the prototokos from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Again, notice the emphasis on his rule and reign as firstborn. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the firstborn from the dead. Literally, there in verse 4, firstborn from among dead ones. The firstborn from among dead ones. Now, this is an important distinction. I want to explain to you why. In other words, listen. His status as firstborn was not conferred in eternity as the eternally generated son of God or as the eternal son of God. His status as firstborn was not conferred at his incarnation when he was born as a man into this world. His status as firstborn was conferred when he was raised from the dead. Now, that's an interesting thought. Let me show you. Turn to Psalm 2 with me. Psalm 2. His status as firstborn conferred when the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Psalm 2. And this is a psalm we're very familiar with. Just the absurdity, the absurdity of rebelling against God. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now that's taking place in our day and age today, right? It may not be those literal words that are proceeding out of their mouths, but that is exactly what the nations of this world, the kings of this world, the presidents of this world, the prime ministers of this world, the dictators of this world, this is exactly what they're all doing. Right? And the wicked of this world doing the same thing. Let us break their bonds in pieces. The triune God cast away their cords from us. 
And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. What an absurdity rebellion against God is. Then verse five, he shall speak to them in his wrath, distress them in his deep displeasure and displeasure and say, verse six, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. You think with me, all of these little tin horn usurpers who presume to rule while God sits in the heavens and they presume to take rule upon themselves when God has set his own ruler upon his throne. He has set the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne, on his holy hill of Zion. Who's the one in charge? Who is the one who is sovereignly working all things after the counsel of his own will? God is. Despite how um, out of control everything may look like, uh, everything may look in our circumstance, it's not out of control. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, working all things together for his, or after the counsel of his own will. Now listen, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, you will be the firstborn among many brethren. You will be the appointed prototakos among many brethren. Now, this phrase, verse 7, today I have begotten you. When did that take place? Turn with me to Acts 13. Acts 13. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching, and he explains exactly when this was fulfilled. Preaching the gospel to to the Jews at Antioch and Pisidia. Paul explains that Psalm 2 is referring not to the eternal generation of the Son or to the the eternal begetting of the Son by the Father, but rather that his begetting, today I have begotten you, is a reference to his resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 26. Acts 13, verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among among you who fear God, To you, the word of his salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Many eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ having been raised from the dead. At our service last night, thinking about this topic of Christ's incarnation and his resurrection from the dead, you have to deal with the Lord Jesus Christ. Life is short, you're going to die. What are you going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ? He has been raised from the dead. What does that communicate? He is the son of God, declared to be the son of God with power. Are you going to continue in your sin against him? What will you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar or is he Lord? He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been raised from the dead. Turn from your sin. Place your trust and your faith in him to save you from your sins. God, verse 30, raised him from the dead. 
He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. They're our witnesses. Verse 32. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In similar fashion, Paul explains in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, that he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God, the prototakos, with power. You might say declared to be the firstborn son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from among the dead ones. He's declared to be the firstborn from among the dead. So, Jesus Christ is not being referred to as the prototakos or the firstborn due to his eternal generation from the Father. He's not being referred to as the firstborn due to his incarnation or his physical birth from Mary and Joseph. Jesus Christ, his status as the firstborn has to do with his resurrection from among dead ones. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Why is this important? Think with me now. Why is this important? First, because God has purposed, God has decreed that Jesus Christ would not only be the firstborn, but rather that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, God says, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. He is to be the firstborn among many brethren. God has decreed this. Think with me. God has decreed all of this for the glory of his son. Everything that God purposes finds its ultimate termination in the glory of his only begotten son, whom he has exalted to the highest station. He is to be king. He is to be ruler over a redeemed humanity in which all have been renewed after his own image. Do you see how that glorifies the son? And they are to be raised together with him from the dead that he might be the ruler, the reigner, the king, the Lord, the firstborn over many brethren. Look at Isaiah 49 with me. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 is what is referred to as a, a servant song from the Old Testament gospel of Isaiah. There are several of them in Isaiah. It's a song that is written to the servant of the Lord, which is an Old Testament prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 49, look there at verse 6. Indeed, he says, God the Father says to God the Son, Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. It's too small a thing. Behold, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles so that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. For the glory of the Son, God gives him the nations for his inheritance. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, right? To him whom the nation abhors, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. 
to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord, because of the Lord God, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. God the Father and the counsels of the Godhead in eternity chose, determined to demonstrate his great, matchless, perfect, infinite love toward the Son by glorifying God to the Son as the firstborn among many brethren, as the prototokos, the, the ruler over a redeemed humanity, a humanity that he himself suffered and died to redeem so that he might be exalted and praised and worshiped in eternity. It is all about the Son. Do you see? All about the Son. The fact that God... The fact that God has predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son is not ultimately about us. It is ultimately about the glory of his son whom he has raised from the dead. God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow. Those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, everywhere in creation, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is to be exalted as firstborn among many brethren. That's first. Second, Paul's point in this entire section of text, if you remember as we've been working through these verses from chapter 4 to chapter 5 to chapter 6, 7, and now 8, Paul's point in this entire section of text is to reassure the one who has put his faith in Jesus Christ that his salvation is secure. He wants us to be assured that even though we've not done anything, we've not worked in any way to merit our salvation, we couldn't possibly do anything to merit our salvation. And even though we've not worked for it to earn it somehow, it is absolutely certain. And why is it absolutely certain? Because it's all of grace. Right? That's Romans chapter 4, verse 16. It is of faith. Our salvation is of faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Why? Because if it is all of faith, then it is all of grace. The grace of God alone. And if it is of grace alone, then it is absolutely certain to all the seed of Abraham. Why? Because God is faithful to his word and cannot lie. He will not deny himself. He will bring it to pass. Do you see? It is certain, absolutely certain. Paul's point has been to reassure those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ that their justification by faith alone in Christ alone is sure. Now consider this for assurance. Consider this with me. How do they know that they will inherit with him? How do they know that God will bring it to pass? Now think with me now about the answer that Paul alludes to in our text, verse 29, with this particular statement. If God's ultimate purpose is the glory of his own son, expressed or revealed most evidently in his status as the firstborn among many brethren, is there any way conceivable in which God would ever fail to accomplish the means by which his son is going to be glorified? Is there any way in which God would fail to do that? In Spanish, no way, Jose. <laughs> it is not going to happen. No way. 
Why is it absolutely certain that we who have trusted in Christ will ultimately be glorified? Why is it certain? Because we are the means through which God has determined to glorify his own son. And he will not fail to do it. He will not fail to do it. He has determined, he has determined in eternity to intimately know us. That's what it means to be foreknown. We're going to look at the golden chain next week and look at each of those terms and what those terms mean. He has determined in eternity to intimately know us, to set his love upon us. He has predestined us to be conformed in eternity predestined you, predestined me. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are predestined by God in eternity. In eternity, he wrote their names down in the Lamb's book of life. In eternity, he predestined them to be conformed into the image of his son. And he now, in time, through his providence, is actively working everything together toward that decreed purpose. God himself, omnipotent, working everything, everything together toward that decreed purpose purpose. Those whom he's predestined, he has called according to his purpose. Those whom he has called, he most assuredly will and has justified. Those whom he has justified, those he most certainly will glorify. So certain, look at our text, so certain is our glorification that he speaks of it as having already been accomplished in the past tense. He is actively at work through his providence to ensure that all things work together for our good. Why is he doing this? Why is it that not one of them will be lost except, except that son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled, right? Why is it that not one will be lost except that dirt bag, right? Why is it that God will raise every single one of them up at the last day? Why is the golden chain unbreakable? Because this is the means through which he has determined in eternity to glorify his own son as the firstborn among many brethren, to establish him to establish his rule, his reign as king, to establish him over the everlasting kingdom, a kingdom which will never go away, a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Heard that word zeal before, right? We know what it looks like when someone is zealous, um, what, what must the zeal of the Lord of hosts be like? <laughs> what shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, then who could possibly be against us? Finally, look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. 1 Corinthians 15. God has determined that we, brothers and sisters, would simply be the means through which he has determined to glorify his own son. He will absolutely see us to our decreed end for that purpose because he will not fail to glorify his own son. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look there at verse 20. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He has become the first fruits among dead ones, as it were. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, in that he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, God, is, God the Father is not subjected to God the Son in this. When all things are made subject to him, verse 28, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially what's going on there is this. The Lord Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he tells his church, his people, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, right? Teaching them, baptizing them, bringing them into the church, right? The Lord tells us he's been given all authority. He is to rule and to reign until all enemies are under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And when all of that comes under the rule and reign of the prototokos, the firstborn, firstborn from among dead ones, the one who rules and reigns over the everlasting kingdom, when all things are put under Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ then turns and gives it all back to God the Father, right? To the glory of his own name. That God, that God may be all in all. Brothers and sisters, God has a purpose in mind that is far more glorious than our salvation from sin, than our forgiveness from sin. Our salvation is absolutely glorious. glorious. Our forgiveness is a wondrous treasure of God's grace and mercy. But God's purposes, God's plans extend far beyond us. Far more glorious than just us. Next week we'll consider the lengths of the golden chain then and how, how God accomplishes that purpose in an unbreakable chain. But now consider this with me in closing by way of application. You can be sure of this. <laughs> Paul's point is to assure his people to, to assure God's people. Be assured, brother and sister. Our salvation through faith alone in Christ alone is certain. It is secure. Nothing, no one, and no thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself has gone before us, and he has gone before us to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. Why? Because we are the brethren that he is going to bring to glory. We are those who are united to Jesus Christ through faith. And if we are united to Jesus Christ through faith, given the pledge, the first fruits, the deposit, if you will, the down payment of his spirit, then we can be certain that where he is, we will be also. We will certainly follow. He is the firstborn from among dead ones. We were dead. We've been brought to life in the first resurrection, given life by God, regeneration, new birth. Right? He's given us life from the dead. He will assuredly raise us with Jesus Christ at the last day. And we are a means through which God intends to glorify his son. In all of that, it's hard to say it any other way. You can take it to the bank. <laughs> It is absolutely certain the Lord will see it to come to pass. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. 
how then shall we live then in this age? What is our responsibility now? Brothers and sisters, we are to persevere as a faithful witness. We're to persevere and we're to persevere as a faithful witness. We have been situated, as it were, as lights that shine in a dark place. And we are to persevere in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, persevere as a faithful witness for Jesus Christ until we are raised with Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter three, verse one. If then you were raised with Christ, if he is the firstborn among many brethren through the resurrection from among dead ones, then we have been, those of us who have put faith and trust in him have been raised together with him. If you were raised with Christ, then while you currently live in this life, Seek those things which are above. Pursue those things where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Fix your mind on those things, not on things on the earth. Because, verse 3, you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's as though we were seated together with him in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter one. Our life is hidden with him in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, Lord, come quickly, we pray that sooner rather than later, <laughs> then you also will appear with him in glory when we shall see him as he is. Therefore, now, verse five, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it aside, set it down, unentangle yourself from that sin, turn from it, repent of sin. Because of these things, verse six, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you used to live in them. And now if you're in Christ, you no longer do. Turn from those sins. But now, verse 8, you yourselves are to put off all these. In other words, we're engaged, brothers and sisters, in warfare. During this time that we live in this life, we are in warfare. We are being conformed to his image. And while he is at work within us to conform us to his image, we are to pursue increasing holiness for his namesake. We're to pursue that sanctification for which God has purposed or predestined us. Now you're, you're, you know yourselves, verse 8, put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and then put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. If you've been born again, in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, you've been renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We've been predestined to be conformed to his image. That work has begun with our regeneration. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies. Put on kindness. Put off, put on. Do you see? Humility. If you put off and don't put on, you're just inviting seven more spirits. You know, come in, find the, the place swept clean. They're going to make more of a wreck of you than you were before. 
You got to put off, and in that vacuum that's left behind, you put on. As the elect of God, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. What is the context in which you are to do these things? In the context of God's people in the church, right? In life, certainly. At the workplace, certainly. At school, certainly. In the family, certainly. But where the one another's are practiced is in the context of God's body, the church, the Lord's body, the church. Verse 14, but above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be grateful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. You do that by, I'm going to take my Bible home, and I'm going to put it on the coffee table. And it's going to dwell there richly. And no, you have to read it. <laughs> you have to wipe the dust off of it, right? And open it up and read God's word and meditate on God's word. You have to learn God's word. You have to do the hard work of reading God's word. Let it dwell in you richly in all wisdom. It dwells in you richly when you are applying his word in daily life as you make daily decisions and do daily things. You see, his word should be pouring out of you as you make those decisions and do those things. It dwells in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why we have congregational singing here, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In Colossians, it follows the, the household table. Wives, that's why you are to submit to respect your husbands. Husbands, that's why you are to sacrificially love your wives. Children, that's why you obey your parents. Employees, that's why you work heartily, not as to men, but as to God. Right? We have that good instruction to help us as we live this life. Brothers and sisters, while we're here, we are to serve the one who created us in his image. We are to serve him in this world as a faithful and persevering witness for our Lord Jesus Christ until the day comes when the Lord returns in glory to glorify his own as he has been glorified so that we might reflect his glory in all eternity and that we might be to the praise of his glory as the brethren of the firstborn, the prototokos. We are to be to the praise of his glory. That's why we are created. And we're to fulfill the perp God's good purpose in that creation, even now as we live in this life, awaiting his soon return. Let's do that, amen? We have a grand purpose that goes far beyond um, our salvation in this time. It goes well beyond that. It's for the glory of the only begotten Son of God and ultimately for the glory of God himself. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we, Lord, thank you for this um, picture, if you will, just from this, um, this one clause, from one word, uh, from one verse in your word. It's amazing, Lord, how rich uh, your word is, that you have made our Lord Jesus Christ the firstborn among many brethren. And we are just so grateful, Lord, and blessed to be among those brethren, uh, among those sons whom he will bring to glory with him. I pray, God, that we will keep our eyes, our hearts, our minds fixed upon these glorious realities and that we might live in the light of them now as we seek to live for Jesus Christ in this world, pursuing holiness in our battle against sin. 
of pursuing the elect for the glory of his name, that he might receive the full reward of his suffering, that in all things you might be honored and magnified in us. May it be to your everlasting praise, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.